saying he would make Abraham's seed to be as the sands of the sea and as the stars of heaven. Uh, both with those who would come through Isaac as Israel and those who would come through Ishmael with twelve tribes or princes, uh, they also would uh, replenish the earth with many, many people. So, from those many, many people, God never gave them opportunity at eternal life. The covenant made in the Old Testament was essentially that of physical blessing, if they would obey, long life, uh, uh, wealth, uh, health, and that type of thing is what was given in that covenant. Now, he did offer it to a few of the patriarchs, and they're listed again in Hebrews 11 as being in the first resurrection. But mankind in general was not given that. Let's go back to Leviticus 23, <clears throat> where the holy days are laid out here, and see a little of the instruction he gave regarding today. Uh, he says in verse 34 of Leviticus 23, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the eternal. So the feast is listed here as seven days, seven days only. Uh, on the first day shall be an holy convocation. You shall do no servile work. In seven days we come before God on a holy convocation. We don't offer the physical sacrifices now listed here. But we still come uh, before God. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. On the eighth day shall be an holy convocation to you. Uh, these are the feasts of the eternal. And then it says, beside the Sabbaths of the eternal, verse 38, uh, you'll bring offerings before God. Now also in 39, it says, also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land... You shall keep a feast to the eternal seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. And then he talks about uh, building temporary dwellings, since our tenure on this earth is a temporary time, and that there is a full-time life coming. But it is also going to be offered to all mankind. Uh, at some time or another. So, <laughs> the physical Israelites had a temporary dwelling. And they still understood that at the Transfiguration when uh, James, Peter, and John offered to build a booth for Elijah, Moses, and Christ. So they understood that going forward, uh, this temporary life is to be replaced with something permanent. But uh, it tells us in, I think it's Ezekiel 46, that we're to keep the Feast of Tabernacles in the same manner as we did the Feast of the Seven Days, speaking of Passover. Passover being complete in seven days. The Feast of Tabernacles also is seven days, uh, and then it has a day added. So it's really, it's not eight days, it's seven days plus one. There's a reason for that. The basic plan of salvation is covered in seven days, uh, in seven days only, and it's typified by the week. Six days we do our work, 
The seventh day is the Sabbath, and we uh, concentrate on God and rest on that seventh day. So he set it up the same way <coughs> in mankind's history. Six days, 6,000 years, will you live according to how you decide to live. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the eternal, and it is mandated. Uh, people will be required to live God's way during that seventh thousand years of man's experience here on the earth. So the week depicts the plan of salvation, 7,000 years. But you have a group of people who have lived during that 7,000 years who have not been accounted for in terms of temporary dwelling or permanent dwelling. So he tacks on an eighth day to cover their opportunity at salvation. Now see, they've already lived as part of the 7,000 years, either the first six or being born during the millennium, but they have not been dealt with eternally. So the eighth day is added to that. Now let's go to John 7, which we just heard in the special music, and Christ will shed a little extra light on this. <clears throat> Here in John 7, verse 37, In the last day, that great day of the feast. Now, it is a momentous, a great day uh, in the lives of the people who have lived from Adam through the millennium and not been offered permanent life but only a temporary dwelling of physical life on this earth. So the eighth day, or the great day, and it's a holy convocation as well, we're supposed to be here, Emmanuel stood and cried. Now what he cried, what he said, I don't know everything he said, but the importance is encapsulated in one phrase. He stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, as, uh, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And it shows him that he was speaking of the Spirit of God, which would be given. Now, he has not offered salvation up till now to everyone by any means. And the vast majority of people who have ever lived on the face of the earth have never been offered permanence, not even Israel, because the holy days were instituted for Israel, and they were to live in temporary booths. So we do not stay in our bed in our house during the Feast of Tabernacles, but they were instructed to live on top of their house or out in their yard or, in, a, in other words, a temporary dwelling, a place that they don't normally permanently stay, uh, to depict that they only had a temporary existence. And we still keep that, and most mankind has still only been offered a temporary existence. And even though you and I have been offered a permanent existence in the New Covenant, we do not yet have it. We're still in this unpermanent physical life. And we're looking forward to a permanence. 
It has not yet occurred. So even though we have been offered permanence, we are still keeping the feast and staying in a temporary dwelling to remind us that we still have a road to hoe. We're not done yet. And we've not been given permanence, even though it's been offered. But the last great day of the feast was the first time, or depicts the first time, if you will, that all mankind will be offered the opportunity to come to Christ and drink of his waters. Most people who've lived and died on the face of the earth have never known about Christ. They've not known about the true God. Most have been atheists or uh, idol worshipers or Satan worshipers through false religions or whatever. Uh, very, very few, only maybe hundreds of millions uh, yet, maybe a billion, I don't know, or more. Uh, maybe there have been 50, 60 billion people live on the earth, so how many were Israelites? The Gentiles have far more people who have lived than Israel although we have been as the sand of the sea, too. You know, you look at the stars in heaven and you think, man, it looks like there's millions up there, and yet the astronomers tell us there's only about 2,000 visible to the naked eye. It just seems like a lot more. Uh, but there have been hundreds of millions of Israelites at the least. But most of them have not been offered eternal life. They've not been offered the new covenant. I think I said even during this feast that those out there who consider themselves Christians and have taken on the name of Christ have not taken on the doctrine or the truth nor lived a life like Christ. So it doesn't count. They've not been offered eternal life. They've taken on churchianity, but it has not offered them eternal life. And if it did, it did so falsely because he only gives his spirit to them that obey his laws. Okay, so he is telling us right here in these two verses the purpose of the last great day. It is to offer everyone who has ever lived and not had an opportunity to come to him and to partake of the living waters the opportunity to live forever, not just physically on this earth, and then die, and that's the end of it. Now, let's see that explained more uh, in Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> Revelation 20, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So he's been loose since Adam and Eve uh, with people on the earth. Now, he's been loose a lot longer than that since he rebelled against God. But that being turned loose was not inflicted upon man until Adam and Eve. And we have had almost now 6,000 years of him having his way with human beings. That is going to come to a screeching halt at the end of 6,000 years, and he is going to be bound for a 1,000 years so that he cannot influence anyone on earth. Now, what a better world that's going to be. 
So he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him. He's sealed there, chained there, can't leave there. That he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. He won't be let loose just before the end of the millennium. He will not be let loose until it is fulfilled, until it's finished. See, the millennium is a uh, thousand-year reign of Christ. It's represented now by the weekly Sabbath. And you don't quit keeping the Sabbath a little while before sun goes down. You keep it the entire allotted time from sundown to sundown. And we and mankind will get, and the earth will have, a complete Sabbath, a complete thousand years. Now, Satan will be loosed for a little season after the thousand years is fulfilled. I'll show you in a moment maybe how long that will be, possibly. Uh, it doesn't say here, it just says a little season, but let's go on down and we'll come to that. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Emmanuel, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So, this would be the righteous those who have followed God and not the beast and the beast's power here at the end. The rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. So only those who had not received the mark of the beast, only those who had truly and fully obeyed God, are resurrected in the first resurrection. The rest of the dead live not till a thousand years is finished. So not until after six thousand years, and then a full Sabbath of one thousand years, then they will be resurrected. That's the rest of the dead. That's a, that's a lot of folks. How many are in that first resurrection? Uh, we've covered that. Jude 14 says that Christ will come with ten thousands of his saints. Not millions, not billions not an innumerable multitude, but tens of thousands of his saints. How many tens of thousands? Let's go to Revelation 14. I looked, and lo, a lamb stood in Mount Zion, and with him a hundred forty-four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. So he stands on Mount Zion. When does he stand on Mount Zion? When he returns the second time, well, actually, probably the the third time, he comes, and the saints rise to meet him in the air, and they will ever be with him from that moment on. They go back for the wedding supper and the honeymoon, as depicted in Atonement. Then they come back with him uh, in Revelation 19, Here heaven was opened in verse 11, And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, 
and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns, obviously speaking of Christ. We learned in chapter 1 that his eyes are as a flame of fire. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. John 1.1 1, 1 tells us that the Word of God is Christ. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, and white and clean. They don't have blood on them. They have white, clean linen garments. That's the clothing of the bride that you see in Revelation 21. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has in his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, that can only be Christ, who comes and destroys the remaining population who are in rebellion against him, and his saints are with him. <clears throat> then he comes again uh, and stands on Mount Zion, and it cleaves in two, as Zechariah 14 shows us. And with him there are who? Let's go back to chapter 14. 144,000 are with him. His bride is ever with him. Tens of thousands come. And here it says, when he stands on Mount Zion, there will be 144,000 with the Father's name in their foreheads. And they heard a voice from heaven. It's a voice of many waters. It's a voice of great thunder. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, verse 3, and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. So that's all that are redeemed at his coming uh, back and forth as he institutes the kingdom of God. And then it explains who they are. These are they which were not defiled with women. That doesn't mean they never had sex in their lives. What it means, and that isn't a defilement anyway if it's in marriage. Uh, it's talking about false churches. The beast and the horde and the false prophet. Uh, God, or Paul even said that he uh, would present the church in Corinth as chaste virgins before Christ. Now, those people had been a very, very amoral, or immoral, really, uh, area or city. And before they were called, they were very, very degenerate and immoral in every way. But once they repented, uh, spiritually speaking, Paul said, they were virgins before Christ. So physical sin is wiped away in the blood of Christ, and spiritual virginity is what it's talking about here. These are they which follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed uh, from among men, being the first fruits unto God and into and to the Lamb. So the first fruits are Christ at his coming. And here it tells you how many first fruits there are. He is the first of the first fruits, and then those are added when he comes, and there are one hundred forty four thousand of them. Then it goes on to talk uh, in chapter seven. Let's go back there a moment and tie this together. Uh, he talks about 
verse 3, sealing the servants of God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So they have the seal of God or the name of God in their foreheads. We read that in chapter 14 about the 144,000. Uh, and here there also are 144,000 mentioned. Now, some people say there's two groups of 144,000, which is a misnomer. Uh, it talks about here uh, 12,000 of each tribe. So they think that these are physical Israelites or of each tribe or that maybe they are changed into spirit, but there have to be 12,000 of each tribe of Israel. Is that the case? Now, who are going to be over the 12 tribes of Israel forever and ever in the kingdom of God? He says the apostles will, right? Well, the apostles, some of them were brothers. So there is no representation of the 12 tribes out of the 12 apostles. As brothers, they represented the same tribe, physically speaking. So some of those apostles are going to be spiritually designated over a spiritual tribe that they were not physically a part of. Follow? If you have some sets of brothers there, they were physically of the same tribe, so they'll be placed over a different tribe than that which they were part of physically when they were on the earth. And it follows that those who become members of the church of God as Gentiles, remember Paul was sent to the Gentiles to convert among the Gentiles, and he says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, black or white, uh, male or female. In other words, we're all the same whether we were physically uh, an Israelite or not. And therefore, in spiritual terms, it makes no difference whatsoever what your racial background is. Now, a lot of us are mixed. we got some Israelite and some Gentile. Does that mean that only uh, a half or three-quarters of us individually will be in the kingdom and the, the other half of us will be thrown away? Which, if you're mixed, which part of you is Gentile and which part is Israel? <laughs> you know? Uh, how, does, how does he separate it and, and throw half of you away? It's not the way it works. Once you come into the church, no matter your race, you are spiritual Israel. And, there, and he does say that there will be uh, 12 gates there in Revelation 21 representing uh, 12,000 of each. So the, the New Jerusalem is patterned to accommodate 144,000. Their leaders or their heads being the 12 apostles. So if you were black or yellow and not Israelite or whatever or a mix, when you come into the church, God writes your name in the book of life, you are designated for whatever tribe he wishes to put you in, because then you are a spiritual Israelite, and you have to fit in one of the tribes, eternally speaking. So he names the, the tribes here, and they were sealed. Well, only 144,000 were sealed in Revelation 14. So these are the same ones that are sealed. It's just that they're divided up, no matter what their background and race, 
into 12 tribes of 12,000 each, depicting the 144,000 firstfruits or the bride of Christ. And it was after this, sometime in the future then, verse 9, Behold, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne, and before the Eternal, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. These are people who are judged later. They're not even raised up until the twelve thousand, I mean, until the thousand years is finished. Then they are resurrected and they're judged according to their works, we'll see in a moment. And they will also receive white robes if they are judged worthy. But there'll be, they'll be from all peoples, all nations, all the past who have lived. And cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about, and the elders, and worshipped God, and fell on their faces. Uh, and one of the elders, verse 13, answered, saying to me, What are these, or who are these, which are arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? They weren't in the first resurrection. Where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. And they will hunger no more, neither thirst, and so on. Uh, for the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them to living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now, there's a river that proceeds out from under the temple of the Father and the Son in Revelation 22, at the beginning of it, right? And it's for the healing of the nations. And it indicates there that there will still be uh, those who are sinful, evil, foul, and so on, existing on the earth at that time when the New Jerusalem is here and the Father and the Son are the temple of it. But it said, no one clean will be allowed within the city, but the water will go out to heal, that is to purify, to help remove sin from the nations. So the Father and the Son will be on the earth, Christ ruling with a rod of iron. Revelation 5.10 says that we will rule with him a thousand years. But these people will be being converted during the millennium, and also we'll see in another uh, time that will also occur. So you have 144,000 first fruits further defined in chapter 14, which we read. So 144,000 total in the first resurrection. Now let's go on back to Revelation 20. Uh, who has the mark in their foreheads of God? We just read it in chapter 7 and 14. Those who have not accepted the beast, those who are the bride of Christ, the first fruits. Uh, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not till a thousand years were finished. So the first resurrection is those who have God's name in their forehead, and the rest stay dead until the thousand years is finished. 
Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection, on such the second death has no power. They are given eternal life at that time. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are expired, it's, it's the thousand years completed, expires, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth. Gog and Magog, representative of all the Gentile nations, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet were, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. The beast and false prophet won't be. They're burned up. They were humans who are destroyed. But Satan is going to be under fire forevermore. So what he's showing here is the wind-up of the millennium. The thousand years finished. Satan is is loosed for just a little while, and he is given an opportunity to deceive those who have lived, apparently, during that time. It's finished, but he's given a little while. Now, which little while? Uh, Christ said that no flesh would be saved alive except he cut the time short, right? So, when is mankind in danger of all flesh being snuffed out? Not today. There's lots of people still living, nearly seven billion. So we're not anywhere near wiped out. So you got the Great Tribulation coming, and some of the people who come up in the Second Resurrection are going to be from the Great Tribulation. But they'll have to have had their robes washed white and be clean. Now, uh, now, I lost my thought there, where I was headed with that. Uh, oh, the time that all flesh is in danger of being wiped out is when? The seven last plagues. While the bride is with Christ uh, doing his honeymoon, the seven last plagues are going to be raging on the earth. And if those weren't cut short, mankind could indeed be wiped out completely. So it appears to me that the time that he will cut it short so that some flesh will be saved alive would be during the seven last plagues. Daniel indicates that a hundred million are going to survive to, to live over into the millennium and establish the kingdom of God on the earth well, Christ and his bride will establish it, but they will live into it and be those that it is established through. Now, if he cuts that year short, it might only be by days. It might be by a few weeks. It could be by a month or two. Uh, in other words, it's cut short so that everybody's not wiped out. These end times are going to start with about 7 billion people alive. And when it's finished, the end of the seven last plagues, there will be a hundred million left, according to Daniel, that Christ will come back to judge. 
So he must cut it short enough to save that many human beings at the end of the cataclysm here at the end of the age. Now, it doesn't say, it just says a little season. But I think God is fair. I know God is fair. So if he promised Satan 6,000 years to reign over the earth during man's existence, he's going to give him all of it. He can't have part of the millennial Sabbath, not any part of it. I think all he can have is what was left when God cut it short. Whether that be days or weeks or a month or two or three, whatever. Uh, it doesn't say, but a little season, not very long. Now, how long will it take Satan to go out to the nations of the earth who are still alive at the end of the millennium and deceive them? Apparently, the millennium ends and he's turned loose on the people that are there then. People living at the end of the millennium. They've lived under Christ's reign now for a thousand years, and they, some of them have to make a final choice. You know, even during that time, if they didn't come up to keep the feast, they didn't get any rain, Zechariah 14. So they're going to be rebels even in the millennium, certainly at the beginning, and they will be given a chance again to rebel at the end if they want to. How long did it take Satan to deceive Adam and Eve? Hey, guys, look at this tree. <laughs> Want some? Well, we were told not, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. Have some anyway. Your eyes will be open and you'll be smarter. Oh, okay. Fifteen seconds? <laughs> you know, a minute or two? Didn't take very long to have that conversation. So I don't know just how long a little season is there and how long Satan will need but he apparently will be given his full 6,000 years. So that little season, I think, represents the period of time that the seven last plagues are cut short so that that last hundred million can live and go on into the millennium. So Satan, then, is rebound. Uh, Verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no, no place for them. So it appears here that the great white throne of Christ appears after the millennium has expired, Satan has turned loose on those people who lived through the millennium, and they have to make a choice then of God or Satan, and some will follow Satan, because it says that uh, those who come in battle will be as the sand of the sea. So he evidently uh, deceives quite a few people, and they're destroyed. Then you have the great white throne appearing, which is what this day represents, the eighth day that was tacked on for these people who lived during the 7,000 years, but did not have their judgment. Notice who is in this particular resurrection. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. 
So these are people who have lived and are now dead and are now going to be judged by their works, by the Word of God, and they will either be written in the book of life or they will not. Now, who are the small and great? That expression is used in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. And in the Hebrew, the term small and great can indicate size of a person. It can indicate uh, dignity or position of a person. In the New Testament, in the Greek, it connotes the same thing. It can either represent the size of the person or their dignity, it says in the Greek, or their position. So I think that this is probably referring to all those things. Because many, many people were born small and died small. Babies were born, maybe they were aborted and never even breathed the breath of life, but they were still conceived. And I think they will be a part of this. They're very small, not even born yet. And Mr. Armstrong always thought that they had to draw the breath of life. But if that be the case, a child that's not yet born, it is aborted, killed, uh, that would not be murder, right? Because it's not a human yet. It's just a mass of flesh that hasn't yet fully developed. So there wouldn't be anything wrong with abortion. But I think abortion is murder. And I think that God will probably resurrect all those babies who were conceived, whether miscarried or aborted or whatever, because they had been joined and were human, though not yet born. Now, is God going to save some of us who have not yet become perfect? Will there have to be a lot of mercy and forgiveness involved for us to inherit the kingdom of God and live forever? None of us will have become perfectly ready to be born into the kingdom of God when Christ returns, dead or alive. Christ is the only one that completed full maturity on this earth. You're not going to be lost because you were not perfect. You will not be lost because the blood of Christ will cover your sin and your imperfections will be overlooked by the grace of God. A baby has not developed the full maturity to be born and breathe on its own. And if it's aborted or murdered, God may overlook that as well. Now, that's the way I see it in both uh, terms of analogy and reality for us. Because I'm not going to make it to perfection, and you, neither are you. No one yet has, except he. So when it says small and great, it could mean the small in terms of man's relegation to importance on the earth, or the great ones, the nobles, the kings, and so on, and presidents of the earth that have existed in society, uh, it can mean that in the Greek and in the Hebrew. But it also can mean those who are small in size and those who are large in size. So a lot of babies have been born. Now let's see 
whether these people simply come up and then are uh, judged as sheep or goats immediately and thrown to the side, one side or the other. Now, we already read it, but let's go back and look at it again. It says, these, small and great, uh, babies, old people, big people, the books were opened in the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books, not the book of life, but the books of the Bible, according to their works. Now, has a baby done any works? Say it's born and it dies a day later. Are there any works there to judge it by? Well, that's one of the small here. It can't be judged on its works. So these are people who are resurrected. They come back to life. They've lived before. And they have to be judged by their works. Now, you could say, perhaps, if a guy had lived 60, 70, 80 years on here, on the earth, and died, and came up in this resurrection, that he could be judged on what he did while he was on the earth. But what if he never heard of the Bible? What if he never knew the rules and the laws of God? How can you judge somebody by something they've never even heard of? That wouldn't be fair. So obviously, if they're going to be judged by the books, the books have to be introduced to them. And they have to have opportunity to be to do works and be judged by those works. Uh, verse 14, And at the end of that, death and the grave were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whoever was not found written in the book of life by that time was cast into the lake of fire. So, people are going to be resurrected to physical life and have an opportunity to obey God and serve God and be a part of permanence. Let's go back to Isaiah 50, uh, or 65, excuse me, uh, and, and look at what he says about the new heavens and the new earth. We always ascribe this to the millennium, just to the seventh thousand years of man's existence here. But it includes... I believe it can include that, but it includes more than that. Uh, let's see. Let's begin uh, verse 17. That's where we always traditionally started reading, even back in Worldwide, speaking of the millennium. He says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Now, remember our doctrine from 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, or more, was that Christ would return and <coughs> set up the millennium, and at the end of the millennium, uh, all the earth would be burned up. Everything burnt, nothing left. And then he would create a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, heavens, the earth, everything, all burnt. Well, wait a minute. What about that river coming out from the throne of God to cleanse the earth? It has to be cleansed, not all burned up and done away. Isaiah 24 says that there will be burning and fire and most men will die, but not all. It says in few men left. Out of seven billion, a hundred million, just a few. 
But it never says in Isaiah 24, which Ellen G. quoted, Ellen G. White, Seventh-day Adventist, and we kind of bought into that. Uh, keep your finger here, we'll be right back. But I'm going to go back to Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more salt or sea. Uh, you can go back to Ezekiel and show that uh, no more sea meant no more salt water. Everything would be fresh water from there on. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned, adorned for her husband. So now here is the new heavens and new earth. And the bride is coming down with Christ. And he will dwell with them and so on and wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more death nor sorrow nor crying and so on. And that's for the 144,000, the bride. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now, that's, that's the verse we use to show that he was going to make all things new out of a burned-up, charred earth. But there's no place that says the whole earth is going to be burned, not in Peter, who was quoting Isaiah 24, or anywhere else. But it does say in chapter 22, verse 1, that this river of life, water of life, will proceed and heal the nations. So they've not been healed in the new heaven and the new earth or on the earth, and they're still being healed. So the new heavens and the new earth are going to include the cleaning up of the present earth that has been certainly damaged by uh, burning and fire and war and all those things that are going to occur here in these last years that we're facing today. And we find back in Isaiah 65 that our old idea that, but that the new heavens and new earth would come after the great white throne judgment is wrong. We thought the millennium would occur, second resurrection, great white throne judgment, people would live a hundred years, and then they would either go to the lake of fire or be transformed into spirit beings, and then the kingdom of God or the new heavens and new earth would come. We preach that there would be no flesh on the earth then, that everybody would have had their chance and either been changed or burned up and have a new heaven and new earth. That's what we taught for decades. But we overlooked something. First of all, what I've already quoted in Revelation 22, where it says that there will still be flesh who will not be allowed in the new Jerusalem during the new heavens and new earth that has come down. Let's go back to Isaiah 65 now and find the same thing. There's still going to be flesh living when the new heavens and new earth are here. Again in verse 17, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. So he introduces a discussion about the new heaven and new earth here, right? But be you glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people, we'll see that those people are flesh, a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people, and the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. 
There shall no be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that has not filled his days, for the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. Now here's a sinner dying a hundred years old, accursed, during the new heavens and new earth. That's the subject here. Hasn't changed. They shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. That's people. That's not spirit beings. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Uh, they shall not labor in vain nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the eternal, and their offspring with them. So during the new heavens and new earth, they're going to be having offspring. And it shall come to pass, that before they call, I will answer, and while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and thus shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Eternal. That sounds like Isaiah 11 right there, doesn't it? That's what we always read about the millennium. And we always thought that Isaiah 65 was referring just to the millennium. And the new heavens and new earth would come after the millennium, after the great white throne judgment, after the lake of fire, and the new heavens and new earth would come. But here, he's not talking just about the millennium. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And the conditions are millennial. Does that mean, then, that the new heavens and new earth come down at the beginning of the millennium, and the Father and the Son with them? It says the bride's coming down, Revelation 21, bringing the new heavens and the new earth. And that no sinners will be allowed in. That means there must be some, and they won't be allowed in the city. And the waters come out to heal the nations. Well, if our previous belief was true, the earth would have already been created completely new and fresh, and you wouldn't need waters to clean up anything. Okay? Let's go on. Um... Here he talks about the end of this age in chapter 66. Thus says the eternal, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build to me, and where is the place of my rest? Well, he says there's no need of temple in the kingdom of God, because the Father and the Son are the temple and the light thereof. End of chapter 21 of Revelation. So you don't need Ezekiel's temple then. When is it going to be built? Get out your hammers and saws, people. It's got to be built before the millennium. For all these things is my handmaid, and all those things have been, says the Eternal. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. So we're still talking about new heavens and new earth. The context hasn't changed. Millennial conditions, wolf and the lamb and so on. And... A man that is humble during that time, God will look to. During the new heavens, the new, new earth. Still a man. 
He that kills an ox is as if he slew a man, and so on. So there will still be that kind of thing going on. I'll bring their fears upon them. Here is the word of the Eternal, you that tremble at his word, verse 5. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Eternal be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. So he's talking there about the first resurrection, and we which were denied by our brethren will be glorified, and then they're going to be ashamed. When's that? First resurrection, beginning of the millennium. That's what that's talking about. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, and so on. And he says, as soon as Zion is travail, in verse 8, and brought forth her children, shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth? Says the Eternal, shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb? <laughs> That'd be kind of nasty. Let a baby come up to nine months and then shut the womb. Now let mother and baby deal with it. <laughs> That'd be tough. He ain't not going to do that. Rejoice you with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you that mourn for her, that you may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations that you may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. So this is glory, glorified. We are brought to the birth. We're transformed from being begotten to born a spirit. He's not going to take us part way and then deny us. We're, we're going to be born. This is a very positive section. That's, when are we born? First trumpet, beginning of the millennium, or just before it begins. Now let's go on down, verse 17. They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens, behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh, and the abomination and the mouth, mouse, shall be consumed together, says the Eternal. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them. Who is the sign? Well, Christ is the ultimate sign, but even Zerubbabel is put as a signet before the nations there in the last verse of the book of Haggai. Let's move on down here. Uh, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth... So he reiterates what time he's speaking of here. New heavens, a new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, still in existence, says the Eternal, so shall your seed and your name remain, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, month by month, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all spirits come to worship before me, says the Eternal. Now what my book said says, during the new heavens and the new earth shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Eternal. We were just simply wrong years ago. There will still be flesh coming to keep the feasts, coming to keep the new moons and the Sabbath, during the new heavens and new earth, while the nations are being cleansed. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, 
and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Those who die at the end will become an abhorrence to all those who survive. And during the millennium, they will come month by month, year by year, feast by feast, lest they get no rain, and worship God in the new heavens and in the new earth. So these people in Revelation 20 are going to be, repres- are going to be resurrected at the time this day depicts. The millennium is depicted by the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles. And the last great day, then, is the day when this great white throne judgment and all these people, small and great, will be resurrected and be given a life in which to prove whether they will follow the works of God or not. Now, how long will they live? We always said this great white throne judgment would last a hundred years based on Isaiah 65, saying you'd die a hundred years old. Well, I think that that carries through. If God, during the millennium, which is when the new heavens and new earth begin, allow or cause people to live a hundred years, and then they die either accursed or righteous, would it not be follow logically that the new heavens, I mean the great white throne judgment, they also be given at the time of their resurrection, whether they've lived a hundred years on the earth or a baby or maybe even an unborn baby, be resurrected, will they also be given a hundred years to live and be judged by their works according to the books of the Bible? I would think that that would be logical. If he's going to have the ones in the millennium live a hundred years, then the great white throne judgment physical existence would be a hundred years, still temporary. And then at the end of that time will be the final judgment. Uh, Those who have all lived and been righteous through the millennium and the great white throne judgment would be changed into spirit beings at that time. And all those who refused God through the millennium and maybe even some who refused before, who are in jeopardy today, uh, who have had a chance and neglected it. And there are a few of those. And there will be some in the millennium, and perhaps many at the end of the millennium, who are deceived and come up against Christ and are destroyed. I doubt they'll be in the kingdom of God. They will have made a choice for Satan. And then, during the great white throne judgment, they'll live a hundred years, and they'll be judged by their works according to Scripture, and then they will either be burned up or changed into spirit being at that time. So everyone who's ever lived will have had a chance, a true chance, at truth and salvation, and they will have either accepted or rejected. So that's the new heavens and the new earth, the millennium and the great white throne judgment. And then the new heavens and new earth will last forevermore. And by that time, there will be no more tears nor sorrow and so on. Now, we are the first fruits, but we've not yet been changed. We're still, still subject to sorrow and so on. And even though this period here right now for God's people is going to represent the millennium and be a type of it, while the rest of the world is still suffering under the beast, we will not have come to the place of no more tears yet. Because even there will be even a final separation 
when the beast power sets up its uh, rule in the temple in Jerusalem after it's been rebuilt, the tribulation starts, there will be another separation even there because he says, pray that you be worthy to escape when that flight occurs. So there will be some who have come as part of the uh, remnant, the 10% remnant who come to build the temple and to build Jerusalem. There's going to be even a separation among them again of those who are not accounted worthy to go to a place of safety. Remember, he says, don't go back in your house. <laughs> Just go and pray that you be accounted worthy to escape and that the weather not be bad and it not be the Sabbath and that God allows you to go. Because if for some reason you are not accounted worthy, you will be killed or you'll fall and break a leg or something will happen so that you don't get away. But most will. I believe that. That faithful remnant will come and will serve God and build His temple, build Jerusalem, and then the beast and false prophet, the little horn of Daniel, will come and set up and defile the temple. The little horn probably rules over that quarter section of this country. It's going to be cut into four pieces. And that little horn that rules over one of those, it says there in Daniel, will come and defile the temple and we'll have to flee from it to Zion. So we're here today to represent the last great day when salvation is offered to everyone. Permanence is offered. Eternal life to all those who have never received it. He says, all men, any man, can come. In other words, he's not calling a few like he has here at the end. He's opening it to anyone who wants eternal life. That was his message on the last great day. So I wanted to go back over that a bit and, and review it and maybe give a few extra thoughts and help us understand that some of our past belief was wrong, uh, that the Scripture does not support it. Uh, we will be eternal during the new heavens and new earth, but there will still be people who are candidates for eternity during the millennium and great white throne judgment during the new heavens and new earth, as it is being healed from Satan and man's dominance, these, the time that it has been. Okay, that's the end of that. In the end, at least for the services, we got until sundown tonight to finish the last great day up. But uh, I do appreciate the cooperation and the peace and the joy and the happiness that we've been able to have here during these, this time. Uh, everybody seems to have responded and been happy to be here and our fellowship and our meals together and everything have been a delight. So it's just, for me, it's been a wonderful time and I hope that it has been for you. And I pray that God will protect you and bless you as you travel home, some of you. Uh, and move on with life and keep praying thy kingdom come and soon because it is direly needed and even though there's an awful lot of horror that has to occur in the coming months and years uh, and soon months and years it will end and then there will be peace on earth for a thousand years eleven hundred years 
after a small rebellion at the end of the millennium. And then everyone who has survived will be eternal and there will be peace and security throughout all eternity for all who are then the children of God, spiritually speaking. So thank you for your offerings. Thank you for your help. Thank you for making this a wonderful time. And I hope that we're closer to God as we leave here and our prayers are more effective than they were when we got here. If that is the case, we have kept the spirit of the feast and we worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and therefore our relationship with Him is better today than it was eight days ago. And if that's not the case, we certainly have work to do. And we do anyway, because none of us, as I said, are mature, and we would all be spiritual abortions were it not for the mercy and the grace of God to make up the difference at the time we die or, or the first or the last trump blows. So thanks again, and Godspeed. <laughs>